back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about two movies, Welcome to Marwin and The Mule, and I'm uh, glad to be joined by my friend Josh Brown, who uh, I guess last joined us on the Green Book podcast. Josh, how's it going? Great. I've been, this is the episode I've been waiting for all year. I was bugging you, like, get me on when you're going to do Marwin. And then I was also like, you have a mule guy because I could be your mule guy. Yeah. So, I mean, this probably wouldn't have been a podcast unless Josh had not spoken in, into existence on the last three podcasts he had done. But I, now I, I kind of felt the need that we have to do it because, I mean, we'd already been promoting it um, with, without my consent. But nonetheless, uh, here we are. And <laughs> look, as someone that uh, we're going to do Welcome to Marwin first and then the mules just so I can get through it. Uh, but as someone that like holds themselves out as someone whose opinion should matter at least a little bit on movies, you can't always go to see movies that are like super well reviewed so i mean we were a little fascinated by welcome to marwin because we'd all known about it for most of the year but didn't play it at like any festivals despite on its surface you know like being like kind of an awards player it tells the story of mark hogan camp who uh was a man who was an artist but then was uh, brutally beaten outside of a bar in large part because he liked talking about and wearing women's high heels he lost all of his personal memories and as a way to cope with his trauma, he created an at-scale Belgian village where he used dolls to do World War II reenactments, uh, one of whom was kind of a stand-in for himself. Most of the others were women in his, were inspired by women in his life, and but also like there are some other Nazis there that kind of attack. And uh, the story is told by kind of like I guess what. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, Josh. I mean, fifty-fifty, like live action, but also kind of going into these, going into these little, this world he's created, where you're seeing these characters act out different scenarios, and you kind of like one of the framing devices around the movie is him trying to, people in his life trying to get him to the point where he feels um, stable enough to go testify in court against the guys who uh, brutally beat him. Uh, Josh, why does this movie exist? Oh, that's a good question, and I think it's one that will like plague like cinema goers for years to come <laughs> I, I know universal's probably thinking so now because they've already reported a 60 million dollar loss on it we should also say it's it's based in part on a documentary called marwin call the village that he creates is called and at least they call it the movie is marwin but th there's a documentary about it that was very well received that came out in 2010 so i mean i guess that goes off my question though like why does this movie exist when there's already a documentary that tells that story supposedly very well neither of us have seen it but I mean, what do you think, like, why do you think this, Zemeckis was inspired by this, and what do you think this movie, why did this movie need to exist, other than to, like, let him do other weird kinds of animation to add to his collection of weirdly animated movies? Uh, like, first off, I think it exists in part to make only me happy. Uh, <laughs> and then, two, I think, okay, so, like, thinking of, like, Zemeckis's body of work, um, he's, he's a guy who's always been this, you know, technical wizard right he's always been on the cutting edge of special effects like since back to the future to roger rabbit and like since roger rabbit and to like polar express and stuff he has sort of likes playing with the difference between reality and fantasy and that's like a heavy theme of this movie and i think with like welcome to marwin um you know, this is a weird melding of, like, I think he relates to the character of Mark Hogenkamp because, you know, on the outside, like, Mark Hogenkamp is playing with these dolls, that these creepy-looking dolls or whatever, and everybody kind of finds that peculiar, but he's also, like, this artist. Um, and I think the years that 
Zemeckis has been in motion caption world, he's been playing with his dolls, trying, and also he too is like Hogan Camp, you know, trying to blur fantasy and reality at each turn. Um, and I think this, okay, so here's the thing I think this film, like the town of Marwin Call, is an art installation in of itself. Uh, uh, I don't think I can like defend the movie 100% on its story, but as like another one of like uh, Zemeckis's like experiments, uh, uh, technical experiments that he's been doing for the past like 20 years, whether it's Polar Express or Beowulf or The Walk, another movie based off of basically Walk. everything since Castaway, aside from Flight. Yeah, like these have been weird technical experiments that were, I think he gets a lot of flack for, like, you know, before, like, you know, Zemeckis was, you know, pretty adept at, like, blending the technical innovation for, like, storytelling purposes. I mean, and, Roger Rabbit's incredible, just from a technical standpoint. Yeah, and, you know, and, like, it, there's always this seamless blend of, like, you know, you think back to, like, Forrest Gump, um, you know, like the feather and the digital effects and that, it doesn't call attention to itself because it's all in service of the story. And in recent years, there's been a lot of, like, criticism of Zemeckis where his main focus is just, I'm going to do this weird technical thing here, and my connection to the characters are almost secondary. Like, that's off-putting for everybody else, and I can understand that. For me, I'm just like, have fun at it. I just, I want to see what you're going to do with this. And so, like, this movie, for me, like, it's very eccentric. It is an eccentric movie. And it's, a, like, I was attracted to this movie beforehand, like, when I saw the first trailer to it. Well, I couldn't tell if you were just, like, being ironic or not. The whole time you were hyping it up. And it seems like you turned out to, like, genuinely like it. And I still, I did not know the whole time if you were serious or if you just thought, thought it'd be fun to make fun of or if you were genuinely looking forward to it. I really didn't know what your attitude was other than you wanted to, like, make jokes about it and then talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and honestly, I didn't know either. I, I thought I was ironically, like, because when I first saw the trailer, and if you remember, like, they released the first trailer for the movie, and people were completely put off by it. It had, like, this weird absurdist tone, and then they had to recut the trailer and make, like, a second trailer that was more, like, promoting, like, this uplifting story and stuff like that. And I was like, this is either going to be secretly a good... Because I actually was a fan of The Walk. Uh, and I like, I was like, either it's going to be a good movie or this is going to be a fascinating misfire. Like, this is one of those, like, Ishtar, like, you know, Heaven's Gate, like, put power to duck type failures that I, I just had to see. And, and also because, like... You know, someone compared uh, um, Zemeckis to like the Doc Brown of cinema. Because, uh, huh. you know, he's, you know, he just kind of this trying mad stuff. Yeah, he's just trying stuff. And so for me, like going into it, I'm like, at the very least, I know that I won't be bored. I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm going to be fascinated by whatever he's trying to do. I'll give uh, him that. I, I, I mean, I was, I don't, I, I didn't really like this movie, but I, I wasn't. I feel like I've seen other movies this year that I've probably liked more, but might have even had like a slow point where like I almost fell asleep or I just kind of zoned out a little bit. And I don't, for better or worse, I didn't get. I didn't zone out of this one. Uh, I was. I was. I was perplexed and confused and trying to figure out what was why. Why this was happening most of the time, but it didn't lose me totally. So I'll give it that. <laughs> 
me of like this quote that like Steve Martin said about like this famous bomb he made called Pennies from Heaven. And he said, um, I must say that the people who get the movie in general have been wise and intelligent, and the people who don't get it are ignorant scum. And <laughs> here's my thing with Martin Paul. I don't get it, but I loved it. Because <laughs> like I'm watching the movie, and and here's the other thing. I wasn't sure if, because like both, so Zemeckis, ever since like Forrest Gump, has kind of gotten this reputation of being a very schmaltzy filmmaker. Uh, but before, like, Forrest Gump, he, he he had, like, a very, like, subversive edge. When you think of, like, Back to the Future or the earlier stuff that he did when he was, like, a protege of Steven Spielberg, like, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Use Cars, where there was, like, this social satire commentary in his movies, and they were kind of cheeky. Uh, um, and so I thought maybe this is a weird melding of the two sensibilities. Like, it's going it, to... Like, and I think, like, the studio, let me be clear. I think somebody got fired when they, like, screened this movie. <laughs> I think, like, when you, I can just imagine the executives at Universal when they were watching this movie all being, what the fuck? <laughs> and whoever, like, greenlit it got fired. Well, it's harder uh, because they, they were, like, they probably had an audience that was just really confused. And they didn't really know who to market the movie to, you know? I... I was reading one thing on the ringer that where someone was just 25 questions I have about the Marwin after seeing it. And they're like, who is this movie for? One of the tells that they didn't know who it was for and didn't know how to market it was just the trailers that played in front of it. And mm-hmm. how a lot of times when you see a certain kind of movie, you'll, the, the, the trailers that play in front of it, well, all, you can kind of see why an audience might geared towards the movie that you're currently sitting in would like any of these movies you're seeing trailers for. But this had like a trailer for The Favorite, a trailer for like Aquaman. One for the Downton Abbey movie, one for like the the upside that Kevin Hart Brian Cranston remake of The Untouchables, and like the Liam Neeson Snowplow movie. So like, it's just like, who who is the target audience for this in the first place that would make us inspire a studio to drop fifty million dollars in making the movie in the first place? You know, I think I heard someone say like this movie isn't for adults; it's for aliens. Aliens, you uh, said? Yeah. <laughs> And, and here's the thing. I don't think they're wrong um, because, like, again, like, I think – and I think this goes back to, like, when they were, like, trying to cut which trailer uh, of, like, the schmaltzy one or the more, like, absurdist. Like, the first trailer was, like, you know, it was, like, you know, promoting, like, the world of Marvin Call. And it was, like, this, like, you know, cheek like, the dolls are shooting each other and there's this weird, weird World War II setting. And it was kind of funny. And, like, and I'm watching the movie – I think people going into it, I think we're trying, like, going in for, like, a very tri- like triumphant story, like a heartwarming one. And I probably don't care that much about that aspect of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think it's actually smarter about its themes than it's getting credit for. But I know I was, like, the only one in the theater laughing at, like, the World War II stuff. Like, yeah. I was the, like, when a Nazi, like, falls down and it's just, like, this, like, small, anticlimactic, like, sound of a toy breaking i laughed yeah um, we should uh we should say i didn't even say who any of the cast was when we started i mean obviously mark hogan camps played by steve carell the the women are and i are barely i, I say played in quotation marks because i mean you don't really see a lot of these women that much aside from leslie mann who plays nicole who moves in across the street from him and he becomes somewhat infatuated with her but then there's janelle Monet, um gwendolyn christie Merritt weaver 
uh, Diane Kruger or amongst the other women that are in his life. But you I, mentioned how you thought the movie wasn't getting enough credit for its themes. And, I mean, that's the next thing I want to ask you. I don't really know if we got to the bottom of why the movie was made aside from the fact that, like, Robert Zemeckis was inspired and was able to get a studio to make him a bunch of money, give him a bunch of money. But, hey, more power to a filmmaker if he can do that. But as far as what this movie is about, I mean, I think – I mean, it's. I think it's obviously about depression, dealing with trauma. I guess to some, also to a certain extent, the way other people will um, will reach out to others who have gone through those kind of things. But I mean, was there one thing that actually legitimately did resonate with you that ultimately left you with a positive opinion of this movie? Like, what was the one thing you're like, hey, I, I they wanted to talk about that and they did a good job about that. See, like, I think like the. The fear I had going into the movie was the sexual politics of the film, right. and, and I found that like the movie was far more self-aware than I had like uh, previously thought. And so for me, like I think like you know I was scared that this movie was just going to be a bunch of, like not understand how creepy the central premise of this is, where like he's making dolls inspired by the women in his life, and they're all supposed to. Ugh. All the women in their lives are, are sole, their sole purpose is to help him, right? And then, like, when he's uh, introduced to Leslie Mann, who plays Nicole, like, you know, the girl who's down the street from him, like, I thought, like, okay, she's just going to find this endearing and then fall in love with him and for no reason. And the movie, you know, doesn't do that. Um, I One of my favorite shots of the year is the scene where, like, He's lost in this fantasy, um, and, like, he thinks, like, the romantic adventures that his doll, uh, the surrogate doll, and her doll uh, that he created for uh, himself, like, you know, since they're falling in love in the story that he's creating, he's also falling in love with Leslie Mann, and he, like, proposes to her, and she rejects him. And, like, it's done in, like, this beautiful wonder where the camera's, like, pulling back, and when she leaves him like you know he's just left alone and the movie never like tries to be like oh okay uh, uh they're gonna be end up together and instead i like the fact that like the merit weaver character who actually is somewhat of an odd ball, ball as well but like shares the same interest as uh steve carell's character yeah uh, he shows no interest to her because you know she's not like the most she's not as like stereotypically pretty as like leslie mann or something like that but eventually those two end up, you know, not necessarily together, but, like, it's implied that, you know, they might try Have something. a connection of sorts. Yeah. Not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I think maybe one of my bigger things is that, like, I didn't want to spend as much time in the animated world. And I, I, I don't know. I just – those scenes – I don't – they just didn't really do it for me without more context for, like, what his relationships with some of these women are. Like, we get quick glimpses of it. But I mean, I think I just wanted to. I mean, all those are very good actresses. They they aren't really most of them aren't really utilized all that much, like we said. But I kind of wanted to get a little bit more of an impression on just like what it was about these people that truly inspired him and led him to create this world. Like, or and also in the case of Leslie Mann, I agree it would have been a stereotypical movie thing for this woman to then fall in love with him. But I mean, did, did it bother you that she didn't like immediately go running and screaming when she saw that like? he had created a doll that looked exactly like her and gave her the same name? Or do you think that was her being a little more understanding of, hey, there's something a little off about this guy, and I just need to kind of, like, be there to make sure he has someone that'll listen to him? See, all right. I gave the movie credit for the fact that, like, they don't end up together. 
Right. I, 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 you know, let's say I'm grading this movie a little bit on the curve. Like, like, yeah, it is creepy. Like the one when like he first introduces like the like her doll to uh, it, like her or whatever. He named the doll after her. Yeah. It, it, it's creepy. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. But like, luckily for me, I actually found like the movie was functioning at its best when it was in this animated world, which I actually thought was seamless. Like, like I think the cleverness of this, because uh, uh, you know, it's basically dealing with the uncanny valley, right? And I thought the clever thing about this movie was the fact that you know everybody complains about the motion capture stuff looking plastic and artificial, right? And and it's like supposed to, it's mocap. Like I, I that didn't, the look of it didn't bother me. Yeah, yeah, and, and I thought like at least like this movie actually has an excuse for that, which is oh they're dogs, right. and and I thought like during the um, the world of like Marwin, that's where it gets very zany, and this is where it gets really bonkers, and and also I think that's where like Zemeckis is just let loose here. And I like the, you know, the serial World War II pulp that he's, like, dealing with. But also there's this weird subplot with, like, Diane Kruger's character as this, like... Witch? You know, yeah, this witch. Like, but it's also kind of like a metaphor for opioids somehow. Yeah, like, I can't even describe it. Like, uh, 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 like that's just a weird element to it that, like, you know, it, it throws me off on it. But I'm, like, intrigued the entire time. <laughs> And, like, again, like, I do, and also for me, like, I did find that, like, the, the motion capture work stuff was, like, you know, like, Zemeck, like a self-portrait of Zemeckis. Like, Were you afraid that he was going to turn it into Team America World Police and have a sex scene between the two dolls? I would have loved it if he did. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at in the movie. Like, people are like, no, no, the, the doll romance is too creepy. I'm like, give me more doll <laughs> Uh, and then also, it, like, you, you can't tell me that it's not, like, somewhat enjoyable when you see, like, all these, like, female dolls, and they have, like, their guns, and they're shooting at Nazis. Like, I mean, I'm all about killing Nazis, you know? That's, like, my favorite. That's that's kind of, like, my, that, that's, that's my, that's my pornography, not Team America World Police, but uh, <laughs> these Nazis just wouldn't die, and, uh, and, I, and I guess there's supposed to be a, a metaphor there, because then you have, a, you also have a, uh, somehow Leslie Mann's uh, ex-boyfriend is kind of like a stand-in for a Nazi at some point, as well as his attackers. And I guess that's the whole thing is that like because he's created this whole insular world and really refused to get other help. And I think part of it also from what I read is that in real life, like his insurance ran out, so he kind of had to self-medicate to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But when you don't deal with your trauma like that um, – the issues are just going to persist, and I, I guess I did appreciate somewhat what they were going for with that, where, I mean, of course the Nazis are going to keep coming back if you don't deal with the underlying issue here, in which he refuses to do because he goes into his little hidden world. And here's the thing. I actually thought the PTSD thing, I thought they handled it pretty well, where it's respect, it's, it's expressionistic, like the, the visual portrayal of him experiencing PTSD, such as, like, you know, like the, the world of Marvin, like, shooting at him and stuff like that. It's expressionistic, while also I thought was respectful. And then when you get to the flashback uh, to when he's uh, being attacked by the uh, neo-Nazis, I thought it was done in a very artful way because it's like it's like really blurry and there's just a strong like red like lighting. And, and I'm not doing it justice like describing it, but I just thought in that moment I thought it was a, a, a beautiful scene in terms of. Uh, 
uh, how it was directed. And it, and it also, another thing I do like about the movie is, like, it has, like, some moments of, like, being kind of progressive. Like, uh, um, like for instance, towards the end, of, like, you know, he's, he's attacked because he wore high heels, right? And, like, there, towards the end of the movie, you see him, like, embracing that more. And the movie, like, there's a shot of him walking uh, after, like, the court case, like, in his high heels, proud. It's like a triumphant moment, you know. The movie treats it triumphantly. It reminded me kind of like, you know, Ed Wood or um, uh, or like something out of a John Waters movie where it didn't seem like it was mocking the character. It just, you know, was embracing the peculiarities of the character. You know, it's also really progressive uh, referring to women as dames. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man. I, I, I get, I get. That's what they did in World War II, but um, the, the, they tried to make that seem like a very sweet thing he did. I'm not saying it's one of the wokest films of the year. I mean, as much as I really did not love this movie, I, I think I could actually make the argument it might be the the best Steve Carell performance I've seen in the last three months. I don't know how, where you stand on that. The uh, well, you know, I, I did like him as Donald Rumsfeld. I'll give him that. I'm not a fan of that movie. I haven't seen Beautiful Boy yet, um, so I I think he's like the fourth best performance in Beautiful Boy after Timothy Chalamet and Amy Ryan and Moria Tierney. Like, oh, is he like the lead? Damn. I mean, Uh, like, I I I don't know. I just didn't buy him as much there as I wanted to, but like, I I don't know. I think he did did a pretty good job. Like, I thought like just knowing what little I knew about this movie and what I did like at the very beginning, I thought it was gonna. I I was worried he was gonna rely too much on like weird ticks and stuff. Just to yeah. convey like what this guy was like and try yeah. to make him seem weird, and I mean he's obviously weird, but like I don't think they they overly did it, and he obviously dresses funny and has a weird haircut and stuff, but like and does odd things and runs away at odd moments, but that's just kind of part of his illness. Like it's not, I, I didn't think they went overboard trying to show you like show you that this was an eccentric guy. Yeah, no, and like honestly, I'm like when it comes to Steve Carell's dramatic performances, I'm kind of hitting this on him. Like, you know, he was nominated for the Oscar for Foxcatcher, and I just think that's just a performance yeah. loaded. I, my favorite Steve Carell is The Big Short and probably then Little Miss Sunshine, but... Uh... Yeah, well, Little Miss Sunshine is probably his best dramatic performance. Actually, I really liked him in Last Flag Fly. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, he's really good in that. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Donald Rumsfeld thing was fine. I don't know if it really... Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a big a big performance, you know, like... Um, but, I mean, it was fine, but, like, I, I, I don't know. I, did, I just appreciated that they... I thought it was well modulated and and it could easily could have gone off the rails in lesser hands, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I 100%. And like, and again, I don't, I didn't actually find the movie to be that maudlin, like as like I was expecting it to be. Uh, um, and also, in a weird way, I can't find it like a weird like response to like the criticism of Forrest Gump because you know most people now like it's cool. It's cool to hate on Forrest Gump. Yeah, it's cool to hate on Forrest Gump. Um, uh, unless you're Ray Romano and the big uh, sick, um, <laughs> and like you know, and like one of the biggest criticisms is like of that movie is that like how poorly it treats Jenny. Like Jenny is this like cool character who um, is trying to live her life and she's like punished for it. And I think like this film, I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, a the I think Forrest Gump does has a, a weird subversive edge to it. But I think in this film it's more overt, and also I think it gives like the female characters a little bit more agency than like say in like Forrest Gump. Though I know I'm 100% in the minority on this one. But 
Yeah, but speaking of the references to like his career, there's also like a Back to the Future reference I wasn't expecting in this movie. What, just because the, thing, the thing's kind of like looking like a Dorian? Yeah, yeah. And it, I think even the Back to the Future theme plays like in it or whatever. So it gets very self-referential. Like, I think as a movie, I think like I I I, I like it as like like as an exercise in analyzing the auteur behind it. Um, and like I think you know when I'm like attracted to like this type of film or other like movies directed by like auteurs and they're doing something crazy with like cgi i think those are like probably the most fascinating the most revealing about the filmmaker like um like same reason why i like ready player one and the same reason why i'm looking forward to alita battle angel and wait <laughs> on the show for that one uh, and, and and then later gemini man and also to be fair i like i do think the effects are pretty well melded in uh um and like, there's some great like work how he transitions from reality to, uh, uh, to this all animated world. Yeah, there are a couple of interesting like fade in and fade outs and stuff like that where it all of a sudden you're you're back in it one way or the other. Uh, crazy. I, what was that? There's a lot of crazy long, t- intricate like oneers in this film that don't like call too much attention to themselves, but uh, they're there, you know, and I appreciated it. Yeah. Um, th- I don't know. I guess I don't know. I guess overall, like, I mean, I, I, I'm even agreeing with you on a few of these points. I just think that I, I probably would have enjoyed a movie a little more if it had. And I, I get that you're saying you enjoyed the animated world better. I think, I think for me, well, like I agree, like you said, there were some interesting ways where it went back and forth from one to the other. There were some times where I was just kind of like hoping they would build out the world, the actual world, a little bit more, and then all of a sudden we were just like back there watching the Nazis invade again, and I was just like. uh Man, this is like, um, I what, what am I watching? Like, you're just dropping me in the middle of something, and I kind of wanted to get back and learn a little bit more about these women because there there, there were a lot of great actresses um, that they yeah. kind of enlisted here and didn't do a ton with. Like, you only see the human Jan- Janelle Monae once. I thought you see her like a couple. Of times. You, no, you see like, her like helping him in rehab, and that's like yeah. that's yeah. like basically it. Um, yeah. I agree that they probably needed more inner lives, like exploring the inner lives of these women a little bit more. Because, uh, um, like, yeah, like they're kind of shortchanged, especially like Isaac Gonzalez from Baby yeah, Driver. She, she's like helping him, or she works in a restaurant with him, and yeah, at the bar that he. Owns. And I, uh, I feel like we're they're, we're supposed to make something of the woman that used to work at the bar that inspires one of the dolls too. It isn't there anymore, but he apparently had some real connection with her. But we're just kind of left to fill in the blanks on that ourselves. Um, which I mean, I get it. It's I mean, I I didn't I certainly did not want a three hour version of this movie as much as you might have liked that. And, oh, I love it. <laughs> Welcome to Marwin Two. Like, uh, <laughs> I, if I have to crowdfund it myself, I'm down. Right. Well, I mean, I don't know. I so I I get that you don't have the amount of time to like go way all in on everything, but um, I I I, and I don't think whatever they were trying to do with Diane Kruger and. Like that, her connection to his uh, painkillers, opioids. I think they could have set that up better, so that meant made a little more sense. It felt like it was like really trying to resolve that very quickly. And there are just like certain things I think that would have like kind of made more sense in the animated world if they had spent more time in the real world. And I don't really want to say where you where you would necessarily like cut from the movie or just make it two and a half hours, I guess. 
Um, I don't know, but like I, it just it just felt oh, it just felt a, a, a bit disjointed to me throughout, and I don't I think yay for Zemeckis getting to do his animated thing, but like I I thought it could have been just a little more uh, cohesive overall than it than it ended up being. But again, I guess there there is a worse way to be a bad movie, and I, I know that's not your opinion that it's bad, but like mm-hmm. at least it was interesting, you know? Like I mean, I, I can give it that if nothing else, you know. Which- was a, that's what, that was why I was always attracted to it since I saw the trailer. Because I'm like, that looks like it is going to look that, that looked interesting, whether it was going to be good or bad. And I think even if you see if you hate this movie, you'll find like it interesting. Because I also think it is Zemeckis' most personal movie he's made in the past like decade. Because uh, uh, I think. Again, like, I think he was exploring his own obsession with, I think he saw a lot of himself in Hogan camp, um, like exploring, uh, you know, this, you know, intersection between reality and fantasy and, you know, manipulating, you know, Hogan camp has the dolls. He has motion capture manipulating these things that express like human emotions and, and, you know, the connection to like, you know, the viewer. Before we move on to the meal, do you have any other final thoughts? Something that you had to say about this movie that we didn't already get to that I just didn't think to ask you about? Um. Well, it, it's a beautiful movie. <laughs> it, it's a. It, 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 I. I. I was. I. I was script the whole time. Uh, I. I. I have nothing more to say. I just want everybody to experience it, and hopefully one day I will find someone who likes it. Because on Letterbox, I'm I looked, I, I gave it a four point five, and I'm one of nine people. Who did. Is there, there? Did it get any five stars on Letterbox? It got a few. I think it got a few. Uh, I think those are you, good. You, you're gonna go make, uh, I was gonna ask if you're gonna go make friends with those people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. If you gave it a five, I'm jealous of you. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, but to me, also, it reminds me a lot of like downsizing last year. I wish I liked down- downsizing. There are people who defend it. I'm not one of those people. But no. this is downsizing. And like, I man, I, the thing is, there, there's like a version of da- I, I can more easily see a version of downsizing that like I would that could have been one of my favorite movies of the year. I just thought it, it, its priorities were in a totally different place than what I wanted it to be. But I legit like that movie lost my interest. You know. This one didn't do this, even though I'm probably much more apt to enjoy the subject matter of downsizing. But like the whole second half of that movie, where they, like they go to China and stuff, it just it just totally lost me. And I, I and I I might have fallen asleep for a few minutes. And like I said, I, Welcome to Marwin didn't do that for all its faults. Like it it, it stayed interesting, whereas I think downsizing just kind of like lost its way. Um, give it give it a couple years. I think you'll come. I think you'll come around on down uh, on Marwin. I think like I think you everybody else was like ah we we. We had greatness in our sights, and we didn't we didn't recognize it. We didn't take the time to appreciate the gem that was Marvel. All right, there we well, there we go. For, for, for what it's worth, you're up to 16 people at four and a half stars on there. So you have yeah yeah you have a few more friends than you thought. But uh, uh now now we're gonna talk about the mule. Uh, it's the it's the newest movie from one Clint Eastwood, the first one that he has acted in in about six years. The first thing he's acted and directed in about 11 years uh since he did uh gran torino and it's based on the true story of a a 90 year old horticulturist that comes apart in hard hard times after really living a hard partying life as a horticulturist and neglecting his family and decides that 
hey, I need to like make some money so I can do some nice things for this family I haven't paid attention to. So uh, one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden he is one of the most prized drug mules in for one of the Mexican cartels. That's basically it. He is being tracked down by a upstart DEA agent played by Bradley Cooper, whose boss is Lawrence Fishburne, whose partner is Michael Pena. His uh, his ex-wife's played by Diane Yeast. Uh, his granddaughter whose wedding he pays for with some of his drug monies paid by tessa farmiga and that's basically the movie we follow him around as he kind of does his thing and we follow them trying to track him down and yeah I, I actually i will say that i think the trailer for this movie is like maybe one of the 20 best movies of the year whereas i en- i enjoyed this movie but like it's trailer i actually enjoyed the movie but the trailer was like uh, way better, and a lot of people thought it might be an Oscar player. It's certainly not that, but it, it was still like uh, pretty enjoyable. Uh, d- d- I don't even remember what you did on Letterbox about this one. You just told me you were willing to be the Mule Guy. So, uh, do, you, <laughs> do you feel do you feel proud to have the title of Mule Guy after seeing this movie? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm glad that I can carry your cocaine for you. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, and here's the thing: when I was watching the, you forgot to mention in your little intro about the Mule that it's the second film of Clint Eastwood this year. Um, after the really poorly reviewed 1517 to Paris. Uh, um, yeah, so at least he rebounded to some extent. I did not see that movie, and apparently everyone I, I did not meet anyone that thought it was a good movie. Um, yeah. Um, and, like, while I was watching this film, I was seeing... See, I, I have a weird relationship with Clint Eastwood. I have, like, two po- posters of Clint Eastwood in my media room, but they're from, you know, like, his days as the man with no name. So, like, I used to really not like Clint Eastwood as a director uh, because a lot of his recent work are not very good. Um, but last year, I actually watched, like, a lot of his stuff in the 70s. A lot of stuff that he started and a lot of stuff he directed. And I'm like, oh, he was once actually a pretty, like, his Westerns, like, High Plains Drifter, uh, Outlaw Josie Wales. Pretty good. Yeah, I, he, and he, I should say that's still a bit of a blind spot for me. It's something I intend to do, but I haven't really seen any pre-Unforgiven Eastwood stuff. Um, yeah, I, 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 I've I softened on Eastwood as a director, and I actually thought, you know, 45 minutes of uh, uh, Soli was a good movie. The rest it was just like it didn't need it to exist. Uh, there's no story I, I, um, I was I was cool with American Sniper. I know a lot of people find it like super problematic, and I, there are some parts of it that I think – I would have taken out in favor of some other terrain that they didn't cover. But, I mean, that's kind of where his relationship with Bradley Cooper began, and they obviously work a little bit together here. And I think a lot of people gave Gran Torino a lot of grief at the time just because, like, it seemed to kind of, like, just kind of want you to laugh at that character's racism and didn't really see much of a problem with it. And yeah, I liked Gran Torino at the time, and I rewatched it, and I hated Gran Torino. Yeah, I mean, like, it's like he's unironically just, like, calling these Korean kids, like, spooks and dragon lady and stuff like that, and it's really yeah. totally played for laughs. Yeah, and there's a moment in this, and this movie was written by the guy who wrote Gran Torino, and there's a moment like that in this movie, uh, like a similar scene. But uh, before we get to that, like, I wanted to say that, like, when I was watching this film, I realized that Clint Eastwood is, we don't talk about how strange Clint Eastwood is as a director. Because, like, when you think about this, He's one of the few Hollywood, like, okay, so Hollywood, Hollywood has given one of its biggest blank checks to Clint Eastwood, a notorious, like, its most famous, like, right-winger, right? Like, but he's allowed to make, you know, uh, any movie he wants every single year. Like, he makes a movie per year and... Makes just, him in, like, two weeks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's the other thing. I realized, like, also, like, he's he does the bare minimum that there there needs to be as a director. He only does, like, one or two takes, uh, 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 and it shows. They, be, they, they, they began filming this movie on June 4th of this year, yeah. which is, like, insane. <laughs> yeah, he's a no-frills dude. And, though, it's weird how, like, his films oddly, you know, sometimes work. Like, they're competent despite the fact that he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and then... And then the other aspect to it is that he's known as this conservative guy, like, publicly, right? But his movies, the politics of his movies are more complicated than that. Like, American Sniper, I think, got a lot of grief as being this jingoistic film, um, when in the actuality, it was an anti-war movie, in my view. Like, I think a lot of, like, the depth of it comes from Bradley Cooper's performance. Yeah, I, I love Bradley Cooper's performance. I don't know if they spend quite enough time with him. Like after he's back from war, aside from him like cradling the doll, that's actually <laughs> actual baby, and like I get going, give a shit. going to like one hospital at one point, and like that's it. And I don't think you see the effects of that the war would have on someone to the point where it is clearly an anti-war movie, even if that probably is the sentiment behind it. Yeah, but I would say like there's a scene in that movie, not to like spend too much time on it, but like there's a set, scene in that movie where like. You know, Chris Cowell's confronted by, like, some, like, neat army doctor or whatever, and he's like, I don't regret anything I did or whatever. And, like, but you can see he's saying that, but, like, the tone of his voice and the look of his face is saying that he does have regrets. He's conflicted about it. And I think all of Clint Eastwood films are about, like, the man being conflicted about, like, the myth behind it. His films are always, uh, like, analyzing and... Um, subverting the mythology of the characters that are presented and also like his films are very you know they're like they're not like this they're almost they're they don't i never felt his films are actually very conservative except for maybe grand torino like they have a very conflicted ideology like and they're also kind of critical of like the white working class uh, uh, generally speaking, if you think about like Million Dollar Baby and how like when you meet Hillary Swank's family and they're this low class, they're presented as this low class trash or whatever. Um, like I think like Clint Eastwood is a conflicted dude. Um, well, 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 there's stuff here where I think like you can in this movie for me even more so than like even some of the other ones where you can more clearly see the seams as to like where he is trying to appeal to that demographic. Like we're gonna have like a 20 minute interlude in this movie that's just just about supporting the troops <laughs> and uh or something like that or also i mean there are like a few moments where he is um where he, he's just like listening to like classical oldies music or things like that where it's like he's trying to definitely like bring those people into the movie or something like that even yeah. if it's like maybe it's not critical of them but he's like trying to show like hey, this can be a movie for everyone where I can have those things in there. But at the same time, this movie is really questioning the the uh, viability of in the thought process and the um, whether or not it's necessary to have a war on drugs. Yeah, and again, like in real life, Clint with politics are less conservative than they are libertarian. Um, uh, like, you know, he's anti-Afghanistan war. He's pro-gay marriage and stuff like that. Um and like yeah, he's really cool with the gays. We learned that we learned that in this movie. Yeah, and the thing is, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, and the thing with this film is like, you know, I think the worry was like, Clint Eastwood is directing a movie about like the drug war and like, all, like all the Mexican characters are essentially drug cartel members. 
characters, right? And they're like tatted up and they're the most stereotypical like drug mule characters you can think of. Um, that said, most of them are presented kind of like favorably. Like they're kind of like presented like Clint Eastwood's character is cool with them and they're cool with Clint. And, you know, they're just, just, they're like, they like Clint Eastwood's character. They're just trying to survive in this gig economy. Um, and, and, and so like, you know, he seems to embrace their Latin culture or whatever. But, um, at the same time, at the same time, there are moments where I felt like Clint Eastwood was trolling because he hates PC culture. And I think he really was trolling the audience. Like, there's a moment in the movie where he, and it's like for no reason. Like, he fixes, like, uh, uh, he pulls over the side of the road and he's fixing, like, uh, helping a black couple, you oh, know, yeah. uh, 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 fix their tire. And then he re- refers to them as Negroes or colored. He's, yeah, um, he says, You Negroes don't really know how to do this, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that point, like, but then, like, it, they, like, call him out on it. Like, the characters call him out on, like, how out of touch he is and his racism or whatever. And so, like, and then he also uses, you know, Beaner, and he calls a bunch of uh, lesbian bikers dykes. Like, I think those are, like, him trolling the audience because he also, like, you know, he's, he's like, like, you know, look, I'm getting away with this because I'm also, like, having it. I'm eating my cake and, and um... Uh, having his know. cake and eating it too yeah and well, at least he has the black family call him out on it i mean that's where i'm saying like he's getting away with it because right. it's being called out on it or but whatever I mean, there isn't as much of that in gran torino right like i mean yeah eventually the kids in gran torino they just kind of take it when he calls them the the asian slurs here yeah. at least like i guess he's like you said he's having his cake and eating it too but at least he's like trying to do both a little bit which i think and i, I think it, he is shown as being a little more out of touch than they are in grand torino whereas we're just supposed to think this is this charming old grumpy man in that movie which isn't necessarily the case here so yeah and i think I, it stands just, apart a little bit in that respect yeah and i think if that was all the movie i think it would be more irritating because so luckily it's like isolated to like those three scenes and and then like you know and, 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 like, it's, you know, somewhat defensible because he is, like, this old white dude. So, like, what do you expect? But it's still, like, I take it as, like, trolling, like, uh, uh, the liberals in the audience. But that aside, I think the movie mostly works. Like, it starts off rocky. I actually liked his performance in the 10 years before. Like, I thought it was interesting. I thought he was pretty – I actually liked his performance overall in the movie for the most part. Oh, yeah. I thought, and, like, I thought he was pretty convincing as, like, being a younger version of himself and then an older version. Like, I thought in those first five minutes, like, he definitely seemed a little, like, a little bouncier, peppier, if you will. And just you could kind of tell without them really doing much makeup-wise. They might have dressed him down a little bit. He's wearing a sharp suit in that first scene when he goes to that convention. But I don't know. I, I mean, I get that, like, maybe it is a little clunky getting to the point where he is working for the cartel. But I still kind of enjoyed watching the book two versions of that character my clunkiness was more like less the setup for that but more like well it actually it is part of the setup where it was like you're first introduced to his ex-wife and diane weiss two-time oscar-winning actress right like in like those first scenes she's really bad like it looks like she just used like the first take and she wasn't ready you know because and that's like the problem with Clint Eastwood's directing style which is you know you know, it's very just like, all right, would you one take and that's it, and I don't give a shit. Um, 
And then, like, when and then, like, the first two runs that he makes as the mule, you could imagine in another hand, it's like it'd be a bit flashier. Like, another director would put a little bit more pizzazz to it, uh, other than, you know, it's very straightforward in the hands of Clint Eastwood. And in fact, like, I don't have to go too far. Like, another, like, low key movie that tackles the same themes, but does it better. And I like this movie, but, like, the better version of this film is Old Man and the Gun. Um, and yeah yeah and like if you think to like the bank robbery stuff in that film like you know they like again that movie is fairly low-key but there is like you know some energy to the bank robberies that are happening you know and it still has that melancholic tone that this movie also has i mean i i i think i gave i definitely rated the old man and the gun a bit higher i don't actually think i liked it as much as you did i recall you have it in your top 10 uh i think but i think this is if like Instead of going back to jail, this guy like went back and tried to give money to his fa- long lost family or something like that. You know, um, and I think they're kind of fun when he's like, you know, as it as it progresses with the uh, mule runs. I think those scenes are kind of like, you know, there is some type of catharsis of like this dude like ra- like raising money for like the VFA and his daughter's wedding, his granddaughter, and her, her to finish school and stuff. Um, I mean, it, what's also funny is though, like, even as like we're going through that part of the movie, like, for Eastwood does like kind of slow it down to have fun. I mean, as ridiculous as it is, he has two threesomes in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like, it's almost like kind of. I think that's him, like, like you said, being a little in on the joke too about how ridiculous the movie can be, and he just decides to go there, and it's like, sure, why not? Yeah, no, I, like, yeah. Uh, um, some people might be put off by it because you know he is the director. A shirtless Clint Eastwood scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's shirtless. He's with a topless woman, and you know he he's directing himself there. Um, <laughs> but, but other, you know, but fine, man. Eighty-seven years old, do whatever the fuck you want. But yeah, like the movie though, like it's like I think progressively better, and then, and then when he sort of reconciles with his family, you know, those scenes are uh, touching. Yeah. Well, the, well, the the other thing I would say is. One thing I think it does pretty well is that just without drawing too much attention to it is it goes you you follow him throughout the film and it, without ever they, they talk you see the cartel members talking at multiple points about how like he's like our best guy and he's just really good and he's he can move a lot and he's got the good driving record but they they never actually say that he's white and uh, I, I I I'm not the first to make this point I think I heard it on maybe the Gruesome and Leech podcast but it is kind of interesting that's just something that's present the whole time that they don't talk about a ton but you know he's able to he's able to have a cleaner driving record and move around so freely and talk his way out of something with the cops outside that barbecue restaurant because he is like just a harmless old white man and he has that he has that privilege and then one scene that maybe didn't work as much for me I almost would have rather the scene where the uh, the, the the Hispanic guy that's actually a full on American just is looks Hispanic gets pulled over later and he's like really scared when they're trying to find Clint. I oh, would yeah. I would have rather that scene not actually had like as much dialogue and just like had that been played by a guy that was like uh just like very clearly visibly scared and acting really scared without saying as much because instead that guy is basically just like the writers of the movie being like see. We're aware enough to know that this is a really tough situation for this kind of guy. He's going to tell you how statistically scary it is or statistically dangerous it is to get pulled over by a cop. And I kind of liked – I would have liked the movie kind of coming full circle to that point without, like, having that guy, like, talking the entire scene. But 
to be fair, maybe that is how some people would react to getting pulled over in that situation. Yeah, I wasn't bothered by that scene. It, it, it's, it, 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 I, I, like, I wasn't mad, mad because it was unsubtle or anything like that. Um, actually, that's the other thing about the movie that I realized, again, like the weird politics of it, because, you know, I think it's against the drug war, and also I think it has, like, an anti-police brutality message to it. Like, most of the police officers, with maybe the exception of, like, Bradley Cooper and Michael Pena, like, they're kind of presented as, like, antagonistic. They're not, pre they're not presented in a friendly manner. You have, like, this scene where, like, a, a, a racist police officer... Uh, uh, stops like Eastwood and the two Hispanic guys outside of a restaurant for no reason happy. other than the fact that they're like Hispanic guys at a restaurant yeah. where it's mostly white people. Yeah, so it has like an anti-police message to it, which, as which well. gets at what you're saying again because you're saying how like his politics are a little more maybe mixed than I guess some people realize. Like I, but coming into this, I would have assumed he would have been all about Blue Lives Matter. You know what I mean? Like I would have thought that would have been Clint's jam. But it seems like he has might have more compl complicated feelings on the issue. Yeah, you would have thought this movie was pro border wall. Like he, like yeah, he, like, what, I think that maybe maybe that wasn't marketed like clear enough that that wasn't the case, or that's just it's just going to come with the terrain when you have Clint Eastwood as the director and star of your movie. Yeah, no, I think he carries more baggage uh, because of his politics. But like when you actually watch his movies, I think the politics of it are far more complicated. Um, one of the and, and like you know this movie, what I found interesting. Uh, was the fact that like you have Bradley Cooper in it, and one of my in the sort of a cat and mouse game between the two. So like what I found interesting um, about um, the relationship between Eastwood and Cooper's characters is that like again like the, the like, neither are presented like they don't really hate each other when they finally meet, and there's actually a really good. Well, they come to that understanding after the Waffle House scene, and they kind of get what each other are about yeah and i uh, like i found like there's this really meta textual uh uh scene when they're like inside the uh car together um like he is cooper has finally captured clint eastwood and the camera's inside the car and it's capturing eastwood in silhouette and they're talking to each other and i thought like that scene was uh there was some subtext behind it because you know earlier this year Bradley Cooper released Star is Born, his directorial debut. And if anybody knows, like, the making of that movie, you know, that was once a Clint Eastwood project, and Clint Eastwood has sort of been, like, a, like an idol and a mentor to Cooper. And I thought that scene, in a sense, was, like, you know, Clint Eastwood is probably the, the most famous, most powerful actor-turned-director working today, right? Hmm. And and this, is, this could potentially be his last movie, right? And... It comes out the same year as Star is Born, and I felt like that scene was sort of like a passing of the torch between the two men. Like, like now Cooper will like follow in Eastwood's path as this. I was kind of, I was kind of happy for Bradley Cooper just watching that scene because, like, I, like you said, he is kind of like a mentor to him, and he obviously directed him in um, Sniper, but like, I guess the first time they've ever shared the screen together as actors, so it had to have been a fun moment for Cooper, and it was a, it was a pretty well acted scene too. I mean, not that like Bradley Cooper is being asked to do a ton in this movie, but like he serves his purpose fine, and I was kind of happy for him that he probably got to share the screen with his idol for one time, and is never going to probably do that again. So I hope he savored that and enjoyed it. Um, like Eastwood's character sort of goes into the sunset after that moment, uh, which you know. Who knows? This could be his last film. You know, 
uh, 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 really think about the statistics about this is an 87 year old man. Uh, I don't know, dude. I wouldn't be surprised if he like puts out a movie when he's like 96 if he's still alive. <laughs> like he, he's gonna be directing something about a like that involves like guns and stuff. He's just yeah, gonna. It's, I think it's still gonna be happening. <laughs> outlive Baby and Chazelle for all we know. Oh, jeez, I hope not. Um, yeah, so I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I like I said, I mean, parts of like I said overall with this movie. I mean, there are parts of it that like I mean, uh, are 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 obviously a little corny and um, maybe a little clunky and maybe not so subtle. But overall, like I mean, it's still like a pretty fun time, and I don't think it's like problematic in the same way that Grand Torino was. So I don't feel as bad enjoying it. Um, and I, I'd say it's like go, go see it with your dad. Uh, my dad loved it, and I was glad I could go to see a movie with my dad that he loved that I also liked. Um, your dad will probably like it. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, I don't have a ton else to say other than like I'm. I think it's um, I, like I said, it was a, it was I was happy and pleasantly surprised that like I enjoyed the the Clint Eastwood performance that much, and I thought it had some nuance and um obviously uh fairly tense i didn't know the true story i mean i guess you can you can kind of uh, assume where it's going to end but i didn't really know at what cost so it was still pretty suspenseful throughout so yeah um did you have any other final thoughts no i said i echo your sentiments like it's a it's a good fine romp um uh um, i think police would you know have a lot of pathos in his performance and you know and it's a movie that i think people will be surprised by if they you know come in with certain baggage um about like clint eastwood and his politics all right well before we again it sounds like we would both recommend this one uh before we get out of here josh uh do you have anything you want to plug other than whatever uh bad movies you're going to try and get me to see next year so you could do a podcast on anything else you want to talk about before we go alita does come out february um so you ready for that one but other than that i just have my letterbox account jkb1626 and there you can you know give uh, welcome tomorrow in a 4.5 review or five. Uh, there you go. And I'm as usual. I'm at Josh Chernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O I on Twitter and on Letterbox. That is two words. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Coming up next, we'll probably have episodes on Aquaman and then Mary Poppins and Bumblebee before we kind of finish up the award stuff and uh, w- with whatever finally gets to my theaters and. Probably on the basis of sex, too, just because I probably have some lawyer friends I might invite for that, even if I'm not super optimistic about that movie. So, uh, everyone, uh, stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.